At various times, God works in people's life and stirs their spirit to do something, to change something, to fan into flames the devotion and service to Him. Now today, most of you probably know, is a day that we celebrate a, such a stirring. 501 years ago, on October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg, Germany. Luther's 95 Theses was a protest against what he considered to be clerical abuses, especially in regard to the indulgences. Now, indulgences was a Roman Catholic practice of selling the remission of sins as a fundraising campaign commissioned by Pope Leo X uh, to finance the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, the basic idea was that if you could pay the Roman Catholic Church a certain amount of money, then Pope Leo would absolve your relatives who are in purgatory uh, of their sins so they could get out of purgatory and get into heaven. You could also buy indulgences for yourselves so that if there were things in your life that would have sent you to purgatory instead of heaven, they would get you out of purgatory and send you straight on into heaven. In his 95 Theses, Luther argued that this was a gross violation of confession and repentance. Later in 1521, Luther was summoned to the city of Worms in modern-day Germany for what's now called the Diet of Worms. And by this time, Luther had written several books that contradicted Roman Catholic doctrine, not only the doctrine of indulgences, but also that of papal rule. And Luther also now insisted that salvation came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was called in and he was asked if these books were truly written by him. And if they were, was he ready to receive forgiveness from the church by renouncing the heresy contained in his books? Luther requested a little more time to, to, to think and to pray before giving his answer. And he was given until 4 p.m. the next day. When Luther was brought back in the next day, he was asked again if he was ready to renounce the heresy of his writings and his teaching. Luther responded by saying, Unless I am convinced by the testimonies of the Holy Scripture or evident reason, for I believe neither in the Pope nor councils alone, since it has been established that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures adduced by me, and my conscience has been taken captive by the Word of God. And I am neither able nor willing to recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. God had stirred Luther's spirit, and he could not, not act. He had to do something. What God was doing in Martin Luther compelled him to seek to change the way things were regarding indulgences, regarding the doctrine of salvation, and it stirred him to do it regardless of the consequences. Now this is not the first or the last time that God has stirred the spirits of people to accomplish His will. Tonight we're going to look in a chapter of Ezra to see one such example of this. Open your Bible to Ezra chapter 1. It's page 362 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that word of the Lord, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, as he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who among you of all of his people 
Who is among you of all of his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests of the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them and encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshabaz, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them. Thirty gold platters, one thousand silver platters, twenty-nine knives, thirty gold basins, four hundred and ten silver basins of a similar kind, and one thousand other articles. The articles, all the articles of gold and silver were five thousand four hundred. All these Sheshabaz, Sheshabazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. The title of the message tonight is uh, When God Stirs the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we want tonight our spirits to be stirred. We want you to, to work within us and stir us to do your will, to be devoted to you above all else. Father, tonight open our hearts as we receive your word, that we would take it, it would go in our hearts, and it would bring forth fruit into our lives, strengthen our faith, draw us closer to you, make us love you more, Father, than we ever have before. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Ezra continues the story uh, found in, that ends in Second Chronicles by showing how God fulfills His promise to return the people to the promised land after exile. Now, twice in this chapter, we find that God stirred the spirits of people. Now, those who were stirred, they were compelled to action. Right? We saw that King Cyrus was stirred in his spirit, so he made a proclamation. He did some other things that the people, God stirred their spirits, and they arose and they went to Jerusalem. And, and when, when our spirits are stirred, that is what will happen, is that we will be compelled to act. When God stirs our spirit, we are compelled to act. I mean, there is just something within us that we must do what God is stirring and building and working within us. Now, in this passage, we see either four actions that we will take when our spirits, or three actions, I'm sorry, three actions that, are, that we'll take when our spirits are stirred, or, or three character traits of a spirit stirred by God. Right now, the first is obedience to the Word of God. Right, we see in verse 2 that Cyrus, king of Persia, and it was to all the kingdoms of the earth that the Lord God of heaven had given him. And notice that he, that God, had commanded Cyrus to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So the Lord God of heaven had commanded Cyrus to build the temple. Uh, God had stirred Cyrus's heart so that the temple could be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting, I thought as I was saying, that Cyrus is very specific about who it was that told him to do this. But it's not just any God. It is the Lord God of heaven. Now, if you're familiar with the way God's name is translated in Scripture, you'll quickly notice that the word Lord is in all caps or the small caps. Now, this is 
God's covenantal name, Yahweh, uh, is what is translated as that in the Old Testament. And this is as close to being a personal name for God as it gets. And really, this name wasn't common knowledge. When the pagans referred to the God of Israel, they didn't use the name Yahweh. Right? The name Yahweh, that was God's name for the people of Israel. They are pretty much the only people in all of Old Testament times that referred to their God as Yahweh. Uh, and so all of this, it brings up a two-part question. Right? With Cyrus using God's name and having this knowledge that he was supposed to go and rebuild the temple. And that really the question is how, but it's two parts. How does Cyrus know God by that name? And then how did Cyrus receive this information from God about rebuilding the temple? And there are two possibilities. It is possible that Daniel told Cyrus what Scripture said. But Daniel um, was a contemporary. He was working in the kingdom of Cyrus at that time. He was like a prime minister. But about 160 years before Cyrus rose to power, God had shared a message with Isaiah about the future restoration of of Jerusalem after a time of exile. And he said something that's fascinating. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. That's pretty amazing, right? I mean, about 160 years before the book of Ezra, the, the events of the book of Ezra are taking place. God has Isaiah write down that there is going to arise after the destruction someone who will send the people back and will rebuild the city and will rebuild the temple. But God is specific enough to say that man's name will be Cyrus. That's awesome. Our God is amazing. Now, Daniel, Daniel was well versed in the Hebrew scriptures. It is likely That he would have known this. And as an official for King Cyrus. Daniel had access and influence with Cyrus. It is possible. That in some of his meetings with Cyrus. Daniel met with him and said. Here's what our God says about you. He says you will release our people to go back. And you will be the cause of his temple being rebuilt. Um. In fact, some scholars believe that Daniel influenced Cyrus to such an extent that he became a follower of the Lord. And that that's why he used the name Yahweh in his letter. Uh, now, we don't know that's the case, but it is a certainly a possibility. Also, it's possible that God just told him. But, I mean, we know that it is possible for God to just tell Cyrus what he wants done. I mean, this was not unheard of in the Old Testament times. Think about the story of Abraham. Right? One of the stories of Abraham, he goes into a land, and the king of the land likes Sarah. And so Abraham, for fear of being killed so they could take his wife, says, she's my sister. And the king takes her. And the king's name is Abimelech, and he took Sarah for his wife. But the very night that he took her for his wife, God comes to him in a dream and says, essentially, I'm going to kill you because she is another man's wife. Give her back. So it is entirely possible that God went to Cyrus and told him what to do. 
But regardless of which way it happened, the point is the same. Somehow, King Cyrus heard the word of God. When King Cyrus heard the word of God, he believed the word of God. And then he put into practice what God had told him to do. Now, I wrestled about how to title this point, whether to say obedience to the word or faith in the word, because both are seen. Right? King Cyrus had to believe what he was told, whether it was, again, a dream that God spoke to him or Daniel that shared it with him. He had to believe that that was really the Lord God of heaven. And then he acted on it. He did what God told him to do. The reality is, I don't think you can separate faith and obedience. They go together. I mean, I don't think you'd ever have one without the other. The only reason we would ever obey the things that God has said to do is because we believe that it is God who has said it. And if we believe that, that it's God who has said it, the natural response of that from us is that we would do what God has said to do. But then we see this kind of example all throughout Scripture where God stirs someone's heart. And then He tells them something to do. And then they jump out and they begin to do it. They, they obey in faith what God has said. Right? We have Noah. Right? Genesis 6 and 7. We find that God tells Noah to build an ark because he was going to destroy the world by a flood. Now God told Noah the exact specifications of the ark. And he told Noah that the ark had to be big because God was going to send two of every kind of animal to come to him so they could get on the ark and they could be saved. Now, it's always important, I think, to me at least, to realize that from what we know, Noah had no idea about a thing called rain. Right? It was not something that had happened. Flooding was not something they had experienced. Uh, Some scholars even believe that the ark may well have been like the first boat. There was not even such a thing as boats at that time. And that Noah, even if there were, did not live near a shore. On top of that, Noah had no knowledge of how to care for the two by two animals that were going to come to him. Probably he had never heard of any of those animals. I mean, this was all going to be new to him. But Noah believed what God said. And Noah's spirit was stirred by God. And so he he did it. Not only did he set out to build the ark, but from what I can tell in in Scripture, it appears that it took a significant amount of time, like 120 years, for Noah to build the ark according to God's specifications. And yet he never wavered. He never faltered. He built the ark the way God told him to build it. God stirred his spirit. God told him to do something. And he believed, and so he did. We have Abraham. I mentioned him earlier, but Abraham was told to leave his family to go to a land that God would show him. I mean, he wasn't even given like a a 10 year plan, right? It wasn't go to this land and then I'm going to do this. It was leave and I'll show you where to go. And what I'll do is I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, make you a blessing, bless those who bless you and curse those who. Who curse you? Can imagine what kind of questions Abraham must have had about all of this. 75 years old. How am I going to have kids now? We've never had kids before. How are you going to fulfill all of this? Where are we going? What are we going to do? But he didn't have all the answers. He didn't know everything that was going to happen. He just, 
He had a stirring in his spirit from God. He had a word from God about what to do. And he did it. He took off and he went in the direction that God told him to go. And then my favorite, probably one of my favorites of the Old Testament, would be Elijah. You know, there was a drought three and a half years. And at the end of the three and a half years, God told Elijah to go and present himself to Ahab. And God was going to end the drought. So Elijah does that. He finds Ahab. He he sets up a contest on Mount Carmel between him and the prophets of Baal. And the, the purpose of the contest is to see who is really God. Is Yahweh God or is Baal God? And the, 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 the stipulations, the rules of the contest were all pretty clear. We're going to set up altars. We're going to put sacrifices on there. And then we're going to pray. And the God that answers by fire and sends fire down and burns up the sacrifice, that's God. And then, knowing that the one who answered by fire was God, Elijah says, but you guys go first. And he lets them go and cry out to their God. And after they fail, he just sits down, prays, and fire rules. And falls and everything happens. He, he had a stirring in his spirit from God. He had the word of God. So he obeyed. He went and he did. We could go on and on. Scripture is just filled with examples of people whose, heart, whose spirits were stirred by God. Who believed the word of God. And so they put it into practice. They obeyed. When God stirs our spirit. This stirring always includes our being stirred to faith and obedience in his word. I mean there's just. That's always what it is. The stirring is meant to produce action. And a part of that action will always be faith-filled obedience to the Word. When God stirs our spirit, we are compelled to act in faith and obedience to the Word of God. So there is obedience to the Word of God. And then there is confession of the will of God. Look at verse 1. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord might be, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and that then he put it in, they could go back. The first action Cyrus took when God stirred his spirit was to make a proclamation about what it was that God told him to do. And then say he was going to do what the Lord God of heaven wanted him to do. Now this was a public confession of his commitment to do the will of God. So I was thinking about this. This seems to me to be a bold action for him to take. Now whether he became a believer or not. He came from a pagan background. And was openly confessing that he was going to do the will of a God of another nation. Now, there's a couple of things about that that are significant. One is, gods at that time were regional. I mean, very few Israel was like the only nation in the world that thought their God was the only God. The idea that there were other gods was not a surprise to any other nation. They had multiple gods, but, but their gods were regional. It was over this land, or some were gods of the hills, and some were gods of the valley, and some were gods in the ocean, and, and things along those lines. Right. So for him to say, I'm going to do the will of a god of another nation, that is a significant breach of the way things were typically done. Also, he was going to do the will of a god of another nation 
And that nation had been conquered. Now in this day, battles were fought and the victors, it was concluded that it was their God who won the battle. Right? So if two nations fought, the greater God, their nation won. So Israel had been conquered and had been enslaved or had been taken away captive these 70 years. And so the, the idea, the picture of really the majority of the culture at that time would have been that the God of Israel was weak. He was not powerful. So Cyrus is confessing to do the will of a foreign God whose people had been conquered. That could very easily have opened him up to mocking and ridicule. Now, granted, he was a king, so mockers likely mocked at their own peril. But the fact remained, it opened him up to this. And I also see it as bold because of how clear of what he, uh, how clear he is with what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. He is going to, to rebuild the temple. He is going to let the Jews go back that want to. And he is doing it. Because the Lord God of heaven, the God of the Jews, told him to do it. You know, there are all kinds of secret ways he could have taken care of this. But he could have issued a proclamation releasing the Jews to go home without explaining why. I mean, he, again, he's the king. No one can demand, why are you releasing the Jews? It's Tuesday, I want to. I mean, he could just do it that way. He could have told only those who needed to know. To release the Jews and to give them provisions that were needed. His, his only his most trusted advisors. The general population didn't need to know. But that's not what he did. Instead he made this bold clear proclamation that went out to all of his kingdom. All over the world. And it was not, I mean it was something like essentially the proclamations would be taken into a city. The herald would cry out, a crowd would gather and the herald would read the proclamation. So, as much as every person in his kingdom found out, found out. That is a bold, clear proclamation, public proclamation, that he is determined to do the will of the Lord God of heaven. When God stirs our spirit and we know what God would have us to do, we will make a bold, clear confession of this. And our determination to do the will of God. Now to, to make this kind of confession. This is what God wants me to do. And I'm going to do it. It takes boldness and it takes faith. It, it's bold because anytime we say God wants me to. We do open ourselves up to mocking and ridicule. I mean there are always potentially people who will mock us. For saying God wants us to do a specific thing. Thing. Right? They may mock us because we're saying we know specifically what God would have us to do. They may mock us because we're saying that this is what God wants us to do. They may mock us because they, they think we're getting a little too big in the britches and think too much of ourselves to say that, that this thing, whatever this thing is, is something that God Himself wants us to do. And the temptation will be to avoid all of that by just not saying what God is stirring in our spirits to do. And we have to reject that temptation and confess we are this is the will of God and I'm going to do it. 
I was thinking about this today. And one of the first times I felt God stirring in my spirit in a way that I would say is similar to this was when I felt that God was calling me to preach. I've mentioned before that when God was calling me to preach, that wasn't something I had in my mind. I went to college to do build computer networks. I had to take a public speaking class. I did not enjoy it. I was sickly nervous before every speech I ever gave in that class. Preaching was not in my short-range plans, and it was not in my long-range plans. It was not anything I had plans. Public speaking made me ridiculously nervous to do. In fact, I remember when I first began thinking that God was calling me to preach, I would envision myself in front of our church at Fort Gibson teaching. And, and, and this is not an exaggeration. Just the, the, the picture of myself up in front doing what I'm doing now, I could feel my stomach churn and nausea rise up within me at, at just a picture in my mind of doing this. So this wasn't something I imagined or planned. So when I first began feeling that God was calling me to preach, I did not tell many people until I knew for sure. I, I told Kelly, I told my dad, I told my pastor, and, and that was about it. I think I told one of the deacons at the church as well. And that was it. I mean, I was asked, I was like, don't tell anybody. Don't ask me to get up and speak. Don't announce the church that you think I'm calling me. I just pray for me that I will know. Uh, but when I did answer the call to preach, I knew that I had to, to tell our church. I had to make a public confession. What the will of God was for my life and that I was going to do it. And I, and I do, I remember the night that I did that, that I made that confession in front of our church. I, it was a Sunday night and we were having a testimony service. And I was, I went to church that night doing everything I could, planning on not to die. I told my pastor I had answered the call to preach and there were a couple of people that knew. But I would have rather gone to everybody in our church on a one-on-one -on -one basis and told them as had to stand up publicly and just declare it. But I knew that's what I was supposed to do. And, but I thought, okay, if, I mean, I can't, I'm not just going to say, hey, Tommy, I've got something to say or anything like that. And we get there and he's like, anybody have a testimony? I thought, oh man, this is it. I'm supposed to get up. And I said, well, I'm not going to go first. So somebody else went. And I thought, well, I'm not going to go second. Right? And I can think, well, if one more person goes, I'll say this is God doing it. I mean, and whatever argument I made, it just kept happening. It kept going on. It kept going on. It kept going on. Uh, and finally, I knew that I was supposed to. And I, I was borderline sick at the thought of having to stand up. I'd given testimonies before. That didn't bother me. But to stand up and publicly confess the will of God for my life. God had called me to preach. And I was going to preach. Uh, I was afraid, honestly. I was afraid people were going to laugh at my saying I had been called to preach. I thought people might say, who are you to preach? Um, who are you to say that God called you to do anything? What makes you so sure it was God who called you and not your own self-will or your own pride? And I had all of these things. That I was afraid people were going to say and how they were going to react. But as, as much as I was certain God had called me to preach. I was equally as certain God was telling me. I had to make a confession publicly. Of his will for my life. And that I was going to follow it. And so I stood up. And I told our church. The last night of revival this week. Uh, the, Lord answered, the Lord called me to preach. And I've answered the call and I'm going to. 
go and preach the gospel or something along those lines. And people only laughed for about five or ten minutes, so it wasn't as bad as I had thought it would be. No, they, they really didn't laugh. They were all very affirming. Several people told me they, they already kind of suspected that's where I was going in my life. Uh, it, was a, it actually turned out to be a very good thing for me, very helpful. There was a lot of confidence in people I loved and cared for affirming me, saying, we'll support you along the way. So it wasn't as bad as I imagined. But it was something that had to be done. It wasn't something I wanted to do. It was something that had to be done. And when God has stirred our spirits to do a thing, that's kind of what we have to do. There is a need for us to make a public confession of the will of God and that we are going to do it. We cannot let fear keep us from publicly confessing what God has stirred our spirits to do. And that we are, to the best of our abilities, going to follow it. The fear will likely be there. The temptation will likely be there to, to do it secretly. I mean, I, I could have just gone. I had I already had an opportunity to go preach at another church. I could have just went and preached and not told anybody. I mean, there are, there are all kinds of ways, always, for us to do it secretly without telling people, making a public confession. But we have to push back against those temptations, and we have to publicly confess this is the will of God, This is what God wants me to do. I am going to do it. When God stirs our spirits, we will be compelled to act. And one of the ways we must act is to make this public confession of the will of God. So there's obedience to the Word of God, confession of the will of God, and then the last one is commitment to the work of God. Now we see commitment to the work of God all throughout this chapter in at least three different ways that I saw. Uh, one is, there is a time commitment. But look at verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, and all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So God stirred the spirits of the Jewish people who then rose up to go to Jerusalem. So how much time did they commit to accomplish the work of God to rebuild the temple? Basically, all of it. I mean, they were going to move to Jerusalem. Now that may sound like a common thing. Of course they were going to move to Jerusalem. But remember, when we get to the time of Esther, which is years later, there are still Jews living in Babylon. They're still living in that exile that they had been sent out in. Right? And... The story of Esther teaches us that by this time, it's been 70 years, they are well acclimated to the land that they're living in. They have families, they have homes, they have jobs, they they have stuff right there in Babylon where they are. In fact, when we get to Ezra 8, we're going to see that Ezra is coming back to kind of restart the worship of the Lord and he needs Levites to work in the temple And when there's a proclamation that all can go back that want to, no Levite volunteers. They are so happy in exile that they do not volunteer to go back to Jerusalem and work in the temple as was their calling from God. Um, So for them to rise up and go back to Jerusalem, this is a huge commitment for them, a huge time commitment for them. They are going to leave their homes. They are going to travel weeks to get to Jerusalem. And then they are going to spend months rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, 
getting worship started the way it's meant to be started. Rebuilding their own homes. Finding them a place to stay. Finding jobs. All of these things is a commitment for them. Now when God stirs our spirits to do a thing, it is going to require a commitment of time from us to accomplish it. Now the amount of time it takes will likely vary from person to person depending on what we're called to do. Uh, Nehemiah's commitment when he went back, God stirred his spirit to rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah, it took months of prayer and planning before he even asked the king that he could go back. When he Decide when the king told him he could, it took weeks of travel to get there. It took him weeks to rebuild the wall. It took him years to get Jewish society back to the way it was supposed to be. Right? There, there will always be a commitment of time we make when God stirs our spirits and we are stirred to be committed to the work of God. There, it is just nothing, nothing that we do from God is done quickly or easily. It's just not. There will always be a commitment of time. There's also a gift commitment. And I wasn't exactly sure how to word this, but gift commitment seems the best. Let me explain. Cyrus was a king. He couldn't actually go back and rebuild the temple himself. But what he could do was issue a decree making it possible for the Jews to go back. He could issue a decree allowing the Jews to go back and say... And anybody around a Jew that's going back, why don't you just give them stuff to help fund the trip and fund the rebuilding of the temple? That that was what he could do. And so he did it. Well, then in verse 5, those who rose up went back to rebuild the temple. Now, they couldn't issue a decree making it legal for them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. That was at the king's whim. But when the decree was made, they could go back and they could do the work. And when they went back, they had to do all kinds of things. I mean, some people had to do the labor, right? I mean, somebody had to chop down trees. Somebody had to cut the trees. Somebody had to stack the trees. Somebody had to make a design. I mean, there had to be somebody there that said, this is what the temple looked like. This is how long the beams need to be, how thick they need to be. Somebody had to organize it and say, okay, you you go do this and you go do that and we'll take this over here. Somebody had to cook food for everybody to eat. Somebody had to make shelter for the people to stay in. Right? Somebody had to do all kinds of things. And whatever needed to be done to rebuild the temple, they did it. And the idea is, they did different things, but they all did what they could do. Right? So they didn't all do the same thing. But what they could do, they did. They, they committed themselves with their gifts and their abilities to do what they could do. To fulfill the work of God. When it comes to doing the work of God. We are all called to serve in different ways. No one way is better than any other way. They're all important. They're just different. They're the way that we are called by God. And gifted by God. To help complete the work of God. Paul said in Ephesus that we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. To do the good deeds that he prepared for us. Beforehand. I mean that's a great thought. Before we were born. God had a plan for our life. Something that he wanted us to do. We we were born to do this. But not only were we born to do that. We were born again to do it. God saved us to do this thing. Whatever it is. So you and I we are created by God. 
saved by God and gifted by God to do a thing, a specific thing. Now what it is, that's up to us. We have to find our, find our thing. But it is something that God saved us and equipped us to do. When God stirs your spirit, He will stir you to do a specific thing. Right? I mean, I've called this the, the work of God and the one before it, the will of God. But that is huge. I mean, how do we do the will of God and the work of God? I mean, that, it covers so much. What do we have to do? We have to find our part in the process. Our part in the work. And do our part. Those who went back to rebuild the wall... And to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah's time. Some of them only rebuilt a part of the wall. I mean, he set them to build near their house. So if I was neighbors with Joe and Sharon, all I did, all I did to rebuild the wall was build from my house to their house. And then all they did was build from their house to the next one. Now, that's not a huge thing to just rebuild part of the wall. That's not rebuilt the wall. But when everybody rebuilt the part that was near their house, guess what happened? The work of God was done. So our part in the work, it's not all of it. It's something specific and it may only be a what, we may, what may seem as a small thing. But our part is an integral part, an important part. And if we don't do our part, something necessary doesn't get done. So when God stirs our spirit, He stirs our spirit to do a specific thing. And when this happens, we have to commit ourselves to the work of God. And with our gift, with our ability, with our talent, with this specific calling. Because it takes all kinds of gifts and all kinds of talents and all kinds of abilities to do the work of God in our church. It takes all kinds of gifts and all kinds of talents and all kinds of abilities to do the work of God in our community. So when God stirs our spirit, He stirs us to commit ourselves to the work of God by committing to doing, by using our gifts that we have from God. So time commitment, a gift commitment, and then lastly a financial commitment. I have a cousin, and and he's another cousin that was a preacher. And any time at a family reunion when he and I were standing together, we had another cousin that came up and said, I know what you guys are doing. Two preachers get together. You're plotting how to take up an offering, aren't you? And we always have to get around the money. Uh, but a financial commitment. But we see this in this passage. right? Look, look at verse 6. Well, first, look at verse 4. Whoever's left in any place where he dwells, let the men of the place help those that are leaving with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides free will offerings. So what happens in verse 6? Those who were around encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, goods and livestock, with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. Now, so some people didn't go back. Whether they couldn't go back or they weren't Jews, they weren't going to go back. But either way, what they did was they helped fund the trip. They gave money to help make sure it could be done. But then also look at verses 7 through 11. I won't read it all. But Cyrus brings out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken, and, and all the stuff, I mean, it's, it's valuable, precious, gold and silver and platters and all of these things that are, not only are they religiously significant, but they're very valuable things. 
Uh, his, what Cyrus gave was kind of a restoration to what belonged in the temple. But still everything that he gave was extremely valuable. So there was a financial commitment made to the work of God. Now I tend to think that God requires financial commitment from us because more than anything else, money competes with God for our primary object of our faith, our affection, and our devotion. But, and, and we don't want to think that, but I really think that's the case. I mean, complete this sentence from Jesus. You cannot serve God and what? Money. Right? I mean, why not sex? Why not Baal? Why not Satan? Why not anything else? Why money? Because money competes with our attention, competes with God for our attention, affection, faith, and devotion more than anything else. People will do more for money and financial security than they will do for just about anything. Again, complete this sentence. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right? And, I mean, Paul even says in 1 Timothy where he talks about that, that, that the love of money has caused many to err from the faith, pierce themselves through with many sorrows. We are actually probably warned more about money than virtually anything else in Scripture. And so God wants to ensure that He is the primary object of our affection and our devotion and our faith. And so He requires us to do something to demonstrate that we trust Him more than money. That is, give money away. Because nothing demonstrates our trust in God, our devotion to God, our affection in God, and not money, like giving money away. Because every time we do, we have to say, I trust that there will be enough. I trust that God will give more. I trust that I won't go broke, lose my house, have the electricity turned off and my car hauled off because I'm giving this money away. Every donation, every tithe, every act of generosity, it is saying, I love God more than money. I trust God more than money. I'm more devoted to God than money. That, that's the point of it. We see it. If we had time, we'd look all throughout Scripture where we see that idea made. So the question I want to ask as we close is, do you sense a stirring in your spirit tonight? I believe that God intends to stir our spirits and compel us to act on His behalf. But if our spirits are not feeling stirred, what can we do about it? I mean, what would cause God to stir our spirit? Now, we're not told in Ezra, but I do think I know the answer. And quickly, turn with me to Daniel 9, page 675 in the Pew Bible. We won't look at the whole chapter, just the first two verses, first three verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request and prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, from what I can tell, this happens about a year before our events in Ezra chapter 1. But there is a connection. I want you to notice what that connection is. Number one, 
there is the connection that Daniel was an official in Cyrus's court. Cyrus is actually king by the time you get to Daniel chapter 10. But also, more than that, Daniel is reading the book of the prophet Jeremiah, and he reads there that 70 years of desolation are going to be accomplished and God's going to send them back. Now, when the book of Ezra is written, and it talks about God fulfilling His word to send the people back, what book does it specifically reference in Ezra 1.1? Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Daniel is reading in Jeremiah 29 about God going to send them back after 70 years. And then by the time we get to Ezra, a year later, in an effort to fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy, Cyrus does this. But it's not only that does Daniel have that word, but after Daniel understands what God has said, he begins to pray. Seek the Lord. God, this is what you said you're going to do. Now, do it. So Daniel first reads the word. And from that he learns that God is going to send them back after 70 years. Recognizing it was about that time, he begins to pray. And his prayer, when you read Daniel 9, is a mixture of confession, of sin, and a plea for God to keep his word. God, do what you've said you're going to do. So, what we see is it's word and prayer. Daniel reads the word. Daniel prays. And the very word that motivated Daniel to pray is the one used to show that that was why God was stirring Cyrus's heart. I don't believe that's an accidental connection. I believe Cyrus's heart was stirred because Daniel read the word and Daniel prayed. Did Daniel share the word with Cyrus? Possibly, I don't know. But I know he read that specific word. He prayed over that specific word. And Ezra said God was fulfilling that specific word when he stirred Cyrus to work. So what causes God to stir our spirits? The word and prayer. God does the stirring. I can't stir my own heart. I can't stir your heart. You can't stir your heart. You can't stir my heart or anyone else's heart. But we can set up the circumstances, the, the atmosphere, the, the situation, so that God can, God will stir hearts. Whether it's our heart or someone else's heart. And we do that through the Word and through prayer. We read God's Word. We see what God has done. What God has promised to do. And we let that drive us to our knees in prayer. And we begin to beg God do what you've done before. Do what you said you would do. We need God to stir our spirits. We need God to stir the, the spirits of others in, in our church and the other churches. I mean, if Cyrus wasn't a believer, then God even stirred the heart of an unbeliever. So there are, how many of us know unbelievers that need their hearts stirred from God to get into church, to give their life to Christ? How do we do that? How, does, how do we help get that going? We read what the Bible has said. We pray for God to do what He has said. We've read tonight that God stirs spirits. We've read what it looks like when God stirs our spirit. So tonight, let's take time and let's pray that God would stir 
our spirit. Stir us as individuals. But, I mean, anytime I pray for revival or stirring, I don't just say, God, stir them. But, you know, start that in me. But then not just in me, but in us. God, our, our church needs your spirit stirred. Stir my heart. Stir our hearts. Then as we leave here tonight, let's be sure that we are in the Word. We're studying it. We're seeking it. And when we see what God has done, and we see what God has promised, let's let that drive us to prayer and say, do it again, God. Do it again. Do it in our day. Do it in my heart. Do it in our church. Do it in our town. Do it again, God. And then, God, let's see what God will do in stirring our hearts and stirring our spirits. Let's just take.